I also rejoice in this uh, series of sermons that, uh, that your senior elder and your elders have, have been pleased to present to you on why Jesus came to die. And uh, of course there is a, an assumption implicit in the title of the series of sermons themselves, why Jesus came to die. And that assumption is that um, the historic Jesus of Nazareth The reason he was sent into the world 2,000 years ago was to die. Um, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, uh, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, um, he tells the story of of being in the Tyrolese Valley, which is in Austria, and visiting a small village church there. And uh, and I quote, he said, um, We saw upon the pulpit... An outstretched arm, carved in wood, the hand of which held forth a cross. And we noted the emblem as full of instruction as to what all true ministry should be and must be. A holding forth of the cross of Christ to the multitude as the only trust of sinners. Jesus Christ must be set forth evidently crucified among them. And then he prays, Lord, make this the aim and habit of all our ministers. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says that that image of a hand stretched out uh, holding a cross is the perfect picture of the role of every minister. That we as ministers uh, are to be faceless and simply to hold out the cross of Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation in this world. And so we rejoice in this incredibly important series of sermons that you guys are putting on at the moment. Why Jesus came to die and We pray that God will be merciful to us this morning as we discuss that incredibly deep truth. Uh, Then I want to just extend a special welcome to those of you here this morning who are not regular church goers. Uh, Perhaps you're here as a a visitor or as a friend of someone who brought you. And uh, I know it can sometimes be a little awkward when you come to church for the first time, especially when people are raising their hands and singing. But I hope that you can feel comfortable enough this morning to listen to what I have to say and that at least by the time you leave here, you will have a better understanding of the claims of the Bible, particularly the claims around who Jesus Christ was and is and what he has done for us so that you can make your own decision about what you are going to do with this Jesus. The topic that I have been given this morning to to preach on is that Jesus came to die to reconcile us to himself. Now I want to speak um, very plainly with you this morning. And so I'm going to tell you now beforehand what I aim to communicate to you about the reconciliation that Jesus has brought us through his death. And there are two things that I want to show you from the Bible this morning. Firstly... I want to show you why we need to be reconciled to God. Why is it necessary? Secondly, how God used the death of Jesus to reconcile us to himself. So two things on reconciliation we want to talk about this morning. Why do we need it? And how did God do it? Both of these questions are answered for us by the Apostle Paul in the little text of Scripture that we're going to work through together this morning. And 
I'd ask you to go there with me if you do have a Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Just make friends with someone who does have one and you can share. But we're going to have a look at a portion of Scripture from the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is the sixth book of the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament begins with the four gospel messages, which are the accounts, the eyewitness accounts of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And those are, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And then the book of Acts follows. The book of Acts is the the chronicling of the next 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus. How did the church begin and grow in those early years? And then after the book of Acts comes the book of Romans, which is a letter written by the the greatest Christian missionary of all time, uh, Paul. And he's known as the Apostle Paul. And we're going to read from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. uh, Those six verses. Now, while you're going there in your Bible... I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament. Uh, One of the prophets of Israel was a man by the name of Hosea. And the very first words that God ever spoke to Hosea, these were God's opening lines to Hosea the prophet. God said to him, in effect, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute, a whore, and I want you to have children with her. Now, if, if, if you were given sort of four options of the first words that God would give to one of his prophets, you know, you wouldn't phone a friend to choose between that one and one of the others. I mean, that's not going to be the one you pick. Why on earth would God tell one of his holy prophets, I want you to go and marry a prostitute and have children with her? And why would those be the very first words that God would speak to Hosea? And I believe the answer is found in the message that Hosea was called to bring to the nation of Israel. God gave Hosea a message that he was to preach to Israel that they had been like an adulterous, prostituting wife to him. They had been unfaithful to him. And God wanted to teach Hosea from the very beginning of his ministry in a highly personal and experiential way what it is to be cheated on, to be betrayed, and then have to go back and reconcile. So Hosea obeys God. He, he, he goes uh, and marries a prostitute, uh, this whore by the name of Goma, and he had children with her. Uh, but then, of course, the, the inevitable happens. She, she ran off with another man, committed adultery. You know, she had always been a whore, and she was just continuing to act like one. And then God gave Hosea the most astounding instruction. And this is from Hosea chapter 3. The first three verses recount this. I'll read them to you. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now note that God doesn't just tell Hosea, I want you to take her back. He, He says to her, I want you to love her. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins that they offer to their idols. And so Hosea says, I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Apparently this woman had now been forsaken by all of her many lovers. And she was now being sold as a slave. What an incredibly pathetic and sad picture that this worn out whore of a woman 
was now good for nothing but to be sold as a slave. Standing on the slave block. And Hosea comes and he finds her standing on the slave block. And he buys her back for himself. And he says to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. Listen, we must be married for a lifetime, he says to her. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Hosea says to her, I will love you and we can be reconciled to one another. And you must be faithful to me now. And I will always be faithful to you. What an incredible picture of the grace of of God in Jesus Christ. What an incredible picture of the reconciliation that the gospel brings. Because we must be under no illusions about who we are in that story. We are the adulterous, whoring woman. Who from the very moment of our birth, though we know God, the Bible says. Though we know Him from that which is made. The creation declares who He is. His power and His eternal being. Though we know Him, yet the Bible says we don't worship Him as God, nor are we thankful to Him. We turn away from Him. We rebel against God from the moment of our birth. And yet, Jesus Christ comes to us. He seeks us out, standing on the slave block of sin. And He Himself buys us back for Himself. And He says, I will love you. I will love you and I will always be faithful to you. What an incredible picture of the Gospel. Now, some of us of you here may feel uncomfortable with some of the words that I've used this morning to describe that reconciliation. It might make you feel uneasy. But as we approach the very sober topic this morning of reconciliation between man and God, we are going to have to use some unvarnished, plain language as we speak about the truths of this. And I'm going to ask you to give me permission to do so. Before we look into Romans chapter 5 and address these two questions that are laid before us this morning, I do first want to define the word reconciliation. If we're looking at how Jesus came to reconcile us to God, let's at least understand what this word reconciliation means. What does it mean to be reconciled? Well, plainly and simply speaking, reconciliation happens when two parties who used to be at enmity with one one another, they were enemies, are now uh, brought together and they find peace together. That's what reconciliation is. When parties who used to be enemies are brought together as friends. Now, I said to you that there are two questions that I want to try to answer from the Bible this morning. Why do we need to be reconciled to God? What's wrong? And secondly, how did God reconcile us to Himself through the death of Jesus? And I said that I would like to to answer those questions by going to Romans chapter 5, which we'll do in a minute. But just allow me to make one more point before we do that. Though we will be looking at only a few verses, six verses in the Bible today... 
Understand that the theme of the entire Bible is the reconciliation of man to God. The entire Bible, from the very first verse of Genesis to the very last verse of Revelation, is about the reconciliation that man needs and gets from God. As you read the Bible, you notice one consistent theme. You notice that man has fallen into sin, that he has rebelled against God, against, uh, God in innumerable ways. Uh, you then see that in God's justice, he demands man's death as punishment for his rebellion, for the sinfulness of our hearts. And then the story of God redeeming us from that irreconcilable position. From the trouble that we're in. And as we move through the history of the world. Recorded in the Bible. And the Bible make no mistake. Is an historical document. It, it chronicles real historical events. And as the Bible chronicles those events. And tells us what has happened since the creation of the world. It also then interprets those events. That's doctrine. So the Bible is both historical and it is doctrinal. Historical, these are the events that has happened. Doctrine, this is what those events mean. And as the Bible both historically and doctrinally recounts the history of the world, everything in the Old Testament is pointing forwards and everything in the New Testament is pointing backwards to the very central moment of all human history. When the, the broken, bleeding body of Jesus Christ hung on a tree and there... We were reconciled to God. <clears throat> now if what I've said to you this morning so far is, is true. If what reconciliation is. Is to bring two enemies together in peace as friends. And if indeed what the whole Bible teaches is that Jesus died to reconcile us to God. If those two things are true, then the two questions that I started with this morning naturally arise. These are the natural questions that rise in the heart of a person when we realize that that is what the story of the Bible teaches. Question number one, if it is true that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, why do we need to be reconciled to God? What is the nature, the standing of the relationship between God and and the human beings whom he created. Why do we need reconciliation? And secondly, if it is true that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, then how did God use the death of Jesus to bring about that reconciliation? How does the death of Jesus reconcile us to God? That's what we'll spend the rest of this morning looking at. Question number one, why do we need to be reconciled to God? Before we can understand even the most elementary aspects of the Bible, even the most simple teachings of the Bible, if we do not understand the answer to this question, we will always misinterpret the Bible. If we don't understand why we need to be reconciled to God, then the Bible will become a moralistic book. And Jesus' parables will be about how to live a better life. 
The Bible loses its meaning, its impact, its worth in the world if we do not understand the answer to this question. Why must we be reconciled to God? Why is that necessary? Now to find the Bible's answer to that question, let's read through Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There is a great deal to take in from those verses. And so it will be helpful for us this morning if we approach those five verses of, of the Bible with our question in mind. The question being, why do we need to be reconciled to God? And as we look through those verses, we see Paul give us at least three reasons Why we need to be reconciled to God. Number one. Because without Christ, we are weak. Look at verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now if you have a a King James or a New King James version of the Bible, uh, that verse is translated there. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So what does God mean when He says to you and me that without Christ, we are weak and without strength? What does that mean? Because certainly He's not talking about physical strength. Some people are stronger than others. Men are normally stronger than women. Adults are stronger than children. He's not talking about physical strength. And perhaps there's a key here in the verse. He equates weakness and being without strength to being ungodly. Read the verse again. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so here in the the context of these verses... Paul is saying that to be weak and without strength is a spiritual and moral condition in which you are counted as being ungodly. To be without strength spiritually is like being a paralyzed man laid on a train track with an oncoming train speeding towards you. We have absolutely no strength to stand up and climb off of that train track. Somebody has to come and deliver us. Perhaps a better analogy would be the life of Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. Because I want you to notice the the tense of the verb here. Um, The Bible doesn't say that we need to reconcile ourselves to God. The Bible says that we need to be reconciled. The verb is in the passive tense. It's something that happens to you. 
It's not something you can do at all. We have absolutely no control over our salvation, over our being reconciled to God. It's like Lazarus being in the tomb. It's not that he needed some uh, ethereal concept called raising. You know, he didn't need to get involved in raising from the dead. No, he needed to be raised from the dead. Now that is what Paul means when he says that we are weak and without strength and ungodly. We have absolutely no strength in ourselves. We have what the old reformers used to call complete moral inability. That means that without the grace of God visiting you through the preaching of the gospel, you will not even seek God. No one seeks God. No, not one, the Bible says. There is none who seeks after Him. The salvation that Christ brings is totally and utterly, from first to last, an act of the grace of God visiting people of His choice. That is salvation. We must be reconciled by a Savior. And my friend, if you are playing the same game that I played for many years of my life, trying to play the game where if I was good enough, then I would get to heaven, that maybe God, you know, He judges on a curve. You know, if I'm better than most people, then I'll go to heaven. And if I've had a really bad week and I've got drunk and I've used foul language and I've, you know, slept with my girlfriend, then I really need to have a really good week the next week so that I can get myself up the curve again. My friend, if that's the game you're playing with God this morning, give it up. It is impossible. You are without strength. You are weak. You are a dead person that needs a savior. So that's the first reason why we need to be reconciled. Because we are without strength. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. Somebody has to come and have mercy upon us and reconcile us to God. Secondly, why do we need to be reconciled to God? Look at verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. So Paul says, if there were a righteous person in this world, that there isn't. There's only ever been one righteous man who walked this earth. His name was Jesus Christ. But if there was a righteous person, perfectly righteous, maybe you would give your life for that person. Maybe you would die for them. He goes on, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So maybe, even if they weren't righteous, maybe if they're just sort of a relatively nice person, maybe even then you would, you would dare to die for that person. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here Paul contrasts two things. He contrasts how we love to think of ourselves. Most of us don't think of ourselves as righteous, but most of us do think of ourselves as good people. So Paul contrasts how we love to think of ourselves. I'm a pretty good person. You know, they did a study of um, murderers in prison. And you know that um, with, almost without exception, every murderer that was interviewed thinks of themselves as a good person. Fine, I've made my mistakes in life, but at heart, I'm a pretty good person. How we love to think of ourselves as good people. So God contrasts how we love to think of ourselves as good people with the reality of what we really are. When God looks out of heaven and He 
looks at every human being on this planet, including you and including me, he does not see us as righteous. He does not even see us as vaguely good. And how we love to use that term to speak of each other. Oh, that's my friend. He's a good guy, you know. Well, God doesn't see us as good at all. He sees us as filthy, abominable sinners. And we are fit only for His wrath and judgment. And it is only a testimony to His unsearchable love and grace and mercy that He would select even any of us to save. Because we don't deserve His love. Now my friend, you know your sin. As you sit here this morning, you know your sin. You know what you've done. As I know my sin. We do not deserve the mercy of God. Sin is an extremely serious business with this holy and majestic God. We have a tendency to make light of sin. Well, it's no laughing matter with our God. And we have underestimated the impact that our sin has had upon our relationship with Him. So this is the second reason that Paul gives why we need to be reconciled to God. Because we are neither righteous nor good in the eyes of God. No, we are sinners and we are subject to His wrath. Thirdly, why do we need to be reconciled to God? Verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Just as a parenthetical sidebar comment, If you're here this morning and you are a born-again Christian, if you know this reconciliation with Christ, the Bible categorically says you cannot lose your salvation. If while you were a sinner, Paul says, Christ died for you to save you, how much more, now that you have been reconciled, will He preserve you for eternal life? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. One of the, the techniques Paul uses in his letters. There's a little phrase in verse 10 that I'd like you to notice. Have a look at verse 10. Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Without Christ, we are God's enemies. We are under His wrath. That is the nature of our relationship to God. I was asking earlier, what is the standing of the relationship between God and the human beings whom He created. Well, the standing of that relationship is that we are the enemies of God. And this is the third reason that Paul gives us why we need to be reconciled. That's the definition of reconciliation. Listen carefully to me, my friend. You are God's enemy. Now, that may be shocking news to you. The sweep of of liberal theology that has swept through the church over the last hundred years. And which is so prevalent in the church today. Loves to talk about how God is the father of us all. That all people are children of God. And it loves to talk about this brotherhood of man. That somehow there's this brotherhood that we share as human beings. 
Well, the Bible speaks of no such thing. The Bible, in fact, says the opposite. The Bible says that every human being born into the world is the child of Satan. We are the devil's children. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. And until we find reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, we remain sons and daughters of the devil. But when we are reconciled in Christ, the Bible says God adopts us as his children. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible doesn't talk about this nebulous brotherhood of all men. If there is a brotherhood of men, it's a brotherhood of rebellion. But the Bible does talk about the church of the living God, the brotherhood of the redeemed. That those of us who are reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, we have a brotherhood and a sisterhood together because we've been adopted as God's children. And so as we approach our first question as soberly as we can this morning. Why do we need to be reconciled to God? We've seen three very difficult answers in the Bible. Difficult to hear. But biblical answers to the question. Number one, we are without strength to save ourselves. We are in need of a savior. Secondly, we are neither righteous nor even marginally good in the eyes of God. But totally sinful and grievous to him. And because of that, we are God's enemies. And we are under His wrath. And His wrath remains upon us, John the Baptist said. As we walk through life, heading for the day of our death and our final judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I think those are three quite compelling reasons to be reconciled to God. Now, before we leave this rather unpleasant subject of our first question... I want to make one final point explicitly clear about this reconciliation. It's not as if human beings or mankind must be reconciled to God in some federal sense. It's not as if, you know, God deals with human beings as a blob, a blob of people, and we as a blob get reconciled in some way. No, the way of the gospel is that God deals with every single human being individually. My fellow sinner, let me say this to you as plainly as I know how. You must be reconciled to God. And that can only happen if you are broken in humility. And you come to God with your head bowed. With no righteousness of your own. And you come to Him admitting your guilt. And you say to Him, God I know I don't deserve this. But I want to be reconciled to you. I want you to forgive me. And I put my trust wholly in Jesus for that forgiveness. You know, when we, when we come to answering this question, why do we need to be reconciled to God? There really is no uh, politically correct way of answering that question. If we want to be faithful to what the Bible teaches, these are difficult things for us to hear. But I must ask each of you, in the quietness of your own heart this morning, have you, honestly, have you reckoned with this truth of the gospel, that you are the enemy of God. Have you reckoned with that? Has there ever been a time in your life when you felt 
the arrows of God piercing your conscience. And you looked into the blackness of your own soul and admitted your unrighteousness and your filthiness before Him. Has there ever been a time like that for you? Has there ever been a time when you realized the wrath of God and you felt a fear of Him? And you felt a guilt for the things you've done? Has there ever been a time like that for you? And has there ever been a time when you have held on to the cross of Christ and just cried out for mercy and said, I put no trust in myself, but Jesus, I believe you took my punishment. Has there been a time like that for you? Because my fellow sinner, listen to me, if there hasn't, you are still in your sins and you must be reconciled to God. Now that leads us to our second question today. How did God use the death of Jesus Christ to reconcile us to His Father? Look back at Romans uh, chapter 5 verse 8. Verse 8 says this, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the answer to our question, how did God use the death of Jesus to reconcile us to himself? The answer is found in that one little preposition. That that little word in verse 8, the word for. How did Jesus use, how did God use Jesus' death to reconcile us to himself? Well, Jesus died for us. Jesus didn't just die. Like all of us just die at the end of our lives. He died for a purpose. He died for us. On our behalf. God's justice demanded our death because of our sin. But Christ satisfies God's justice by taking our sin upon himself. And being punished for our sins in his body, even unto death. So that our sins have now been paid for. And we can go free. Folks, this this message. this This is one of the deepest messages. We will never fully understand The transaction that happened on the cross that day. When the Trinity, the eternal Trinity of God. Somehow God the Son, the eternal God. He came and and He died on a cross. And God the Father forsook His own Son. He turned away from His Son as He brutalized and punished Him for our sins. What Jesus went through on that cross, we will never fully understand. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He forsook him for you. Because your sin was being laid upon Jesus. And he was being punished for you. So that you could have peace with God. God, we thank you for your mercy in Jesus. We thank you for all you've done for us, Jesus. But we were without hope, oh God, and you came for us, Lord. 
Jesus said, I came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible says, we've just read it in in Romans chapter 5, that while we were still weak, while we were without strength, that at the right time Christ came and He died for the ungodly, not for the godly. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There is hope for you this morning, my fellow sinner. There's hope for you. Because Jesus has taken your sin upon Himself. You can be reconciled to God. Paul the Apostle explains that moment on the cross as Christ suffered and died for us. He explains that moment like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. He says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, why does Paul say that? Why in Christ, in the broken, bleeding body of Jesus Christ, was God reconciling the world to Himself? And he gives the answer. He says, because in Christ, He was not counting our trespasses against us. He was counting them against Christ, and He was punishing them in the body of Christ. In the words of the... Westminster Confession, this was written in 1643. Chapter 8, Article 5 of the Confession says this. The Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, has fully satisfied the justice of His Father and purchased not only reconciliation but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for those whom the Father has given unto Him. As I close this morning, my friends, let me ask you, have you been reconciled to God? You as an individual, as you sit here this morning, have you been reconciled to God yet? After Christ died, putting away our sins forever, Paying the price for them after he died, he rose from the dead. And he ascended into the heavens, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. I don't speak to you this morning as one who is above it all. I speak to you as a fellow sinner. And I speak to you as one, when I was 23 years old, who came to know my own sinfulness and who came to know the reconciliation that God offers me through the death of His Son. And I have come to know the peace of God that comes when we turn our lives over to Christ. And if you don't know that this morning, my friend, I compel you, come to Jesus. Put your faith entirely on Him and be reconciled to God.